And Lord, we do crown you with many crowns. You are the king of all. You are the king of the universe. And Lord, we pray that you would be king and reign in our hearts and our lives. We pray your kingdom would come. And so, Lord, today we come to you to celebrate the resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ, your power over death and sin, the mark of your approval of his person, his work, particularly the work of Christ on the cross, that he did indeed atone for our sin, that he did indeed pay the penalty and propitiate your wrath that was due to us. And so, Lord, we rejoice in this, we celebrate this, and Lord, we pray that we would take this to our hearts, not just in a sense that we have it in our minds and we affirm it intellectually, but Lord, may we take this to our hearts, which means to live it out to build our lives around the truth of Christ, Him crucified, resurrected, ascended to Your throne. And Lord, we pray that we would live in true faith and obedience and praise of Your Son, Jesus Christ. We do again pray for those who are among us, those who are here with us that may not be truly born again. We pray, Lord, that You would regenerate their hearts even now as I pray that they would see this all apart as Your sovereign plan in their lives to bring them here, to help them hear and understand and believe the gospel. And I pray, Lord, whatever barrier they have, whether it's sin or doubt, or perhaps it's even misunderstanding, assuming themselves to be truly saved when indeed they're not, I pray that you would clear their minds and grant them the faith and belief and repentance they need to follow after Jesus. Give them a desire to truly respond to the resurrection in faith and worship and obedience. We ask all of this in the name of your Son who is risen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we are so privileged to be here and be able to worship on this wonderful day, Resurrection Day, to sing and celebrate and learn from God's Word about the most magnificent miracle, really the most magnificent event to ever happen on the face of this planet. Think about this, three days after the most tragic, most depraved, most vile, even the most satanic thing to ever take place on this earth, we have the most glorious, most divine miracle occurring just three days later. In fact, this miracle fills us with such great joy, such thrilling hope, and we can see God's gracious, sovereign, atoning plan even in those dark hours from just a few days before. The end of Jesus' ministry was not some tragic martyrdom. The end of His ministry was not victory for the Romans or victory for the Jewish leaders or victory for Judas or victory for the chief priests. Whoever else was involved in killing the Son of God, it certainly was not victory for Satan. The end of his physical in-person ministry was resurrection, ascension, and the explosion of a spiritual kingdom, a kingdom far bigger, longer lasting, with many more citizens than any other kingdom or religion to ever exist. But that morning, the morning of the resurrection did not start like that, did it? It started like any other Lord's Day. It started in darkness. I was listening to one of my favorite preachers this week. 
I was reminded of an extremely popular play in the 50s and 60s. Precious few of you were around to remember this. Maybe a few others of you studied it in some English lit class, but you've probably forgotten about this play since then. It's the high-minded, very elite play, Waiting for Godot. Does anybody remember this play? Written by an Irish novelist, a poet, playwright, Samuel Beckett. He wrote this play, was produced, and the first showing was in 1953 to the acclaim of the whole world, and it was extremely popular for about 15 years. It still is somewhat popular. People who think of themselves as smart talk about it. The rest of us just wag our heads. What's the story of this play? Well, the story is about these two guys who, by chance, meet each other under a leafless tree, and they begin to talk about all the problems in life, all the trouble that they've each one of them have had. A parade of different characters come through and talk with them and speak with them and they with those people. Eventually, after an annoying, annoyingly long time of griping and complaining, they realize they're both standing there waiting for some fellow named Godot. Neither one of them have ever seen this guy. Neither one of them know this person. Neither one of them even know when or if he'll even arrive. But there they are by the leafless tree complaining but still waiting. Eventually a boy shows up. He says he's a messenger of Godot and tells them Godot's coming but not today. He's going to come tomorrow, he says. And the two men began to debate, well, should we wait for him or should we just go about our lives? They decide there at the end of Act 1 to indeed wait for him. In the second act, the final act, they're still there by that tree. The same parade of people come by and speak with them, only everything seems to be worse. They, they bicker and fight with these people and with one another and argue with them. They even argue with this boy who, for some reason, doesn't seem to remember them from the day before. Godot never shows up. They don't even know and debate even if Godot exists. So they debate whether or not he's coming, and the play ends after they decide together to come back the next day and commit suicide together. This play, I'm not even sure if you could call it art, is a perfect example of the emptiness and nihilism, that nothingness, that secular, godless thinking results in. Life is meaningless. All the pain and suffering that you endure is meaningless, but also are the joys and beauty of life. All of it, the love and friendship, all of it is ultimately meaningless. You are simply the result of molecules bouncing off one another through billions of years of evolution, and eventually it will all pass away as well. It's all meaningless. It's all vanity. All your hopes and dreams, all your devotion, all your efforts to be moral and good, all of it is in the end meaningless. Depressed yet? Well, I think this feeling was something that approaches what those people must have felt. Resurrection morning. Must be similar to what they thought that Sunday morning. Mary Magdalene, Mary, another, the other Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, some others, even Joseph of Arimathea, the other disciples as well who weren't there for the crucifixion. I imagine they all had a sense of 
dread of worthlessness. They probably also had the additional guilt of the fact that many of them had abandoned Jesus before He died, especially the Apostle Peter. Is this all meaningless, they must have asked themselves? We left our jobs, we left our family, we left our reputation, we left everything to follow Him, and now He's gone. We've really oriented our whole lives around this, this man whom we thought was the Messiah, all for nothing. What sad feelings they must have had. The last thing they saw, Matthew 27, was the tomb being sealed over with their dead Messiah inside. Well, Matthew chapter 28 begins with a pretty brief account of the resurrection. And it's not about giving a list of witnesses. This is not evidentiary apologetics, those of you who are into that kind of thing, though there is certainly some evidence here. No, Matthew's account is all about how these ladies in particular, but the disciples by extension, felt in those days before and after they discovered the resurrection. And I think it's an extension of how all the disciples felt and should be how we feel and how we respond to the resurrection. This swing from despondency and the feelings of meaninglessness and worthlessness all the way to this breathless thrill that Jesus is alive. So let's read this. Open your Bibles to Matthew 28. We're finally to the final chapter of Matthew after five years of our study here, and we've made it all the way to the last chapter, and it begins with an account from the emotion, the perspective of the emotions of these ladies of the resurrection. Matthew 28, I'm going to read verses 1 to 15. Follow along as I read aloud. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb and with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they, had, they gave sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell the people, his disciples came by night and stole them away while they were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. 
This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just an interesting feature of the gospel. Some little appendix to the end to say, oh yeah, and they all lived happily ever after. A lot of people think this about the Bible, that as they look at the Bible, even the gospel accounts, that it's just, it's simply a series of vignettes and moral stories and perhaps lists of rules, and we sort of piece it together with all these things and sort of come up with this this sort of moral way of living, and that's all we're really required to do. Sort of an anthology of things that happened in terms of the Jews. No, each one of the biblical writers, including Matthew here, had a point. They're all headed in one direction. Every one of the gospel writers were taking us to this point, from their own angle, taking us to this point of resurrection. We've been on this journey, like I said, for five years. If you've been with us for five years now, going carefully through every section of the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, all these stories, we come finally to the point where all of it is divinely validated. I find it interesting that as important as the cross is, as important as the atonement is, and we spent four weeks studying the atonement, the church did not see fit to gather on Friday, the day of the cross. No, Sunday has always been the Lord's day. This is the end of Matthew's gospel. This is Jesus' crowning event. In the next passage, in fact, Jesus essentially answers for His disciples the question, now what? And sends them on with their great commission. Let's just go through, think back all the way from the beginning. Take this journey for a moment. There, Matthew began with Jesus' lineage. Remember this, that Jesus would be the promised one, that He fulfilled all the promises. He was, he was of the right lineage. He was of the right family, the family that was a family of promise, the family to whom God had said the Messiah would come from. He was born, in fact, in the place that the Scriptures had said, and that was not his hometown, not his parents' hometown, but the city of David, Bethlehem. The family stayed there for a few years in Bethlehem until finally they were warned by an angel that they should flee. They were warned just as some others were warned about impending doom for the Messiah, and that was a group of wise men from the east. These men came, and they came, and they worshiped Jesus and told Joseph about the warning, and Joseph, of course, confirmed in his own dream. They left, went down to Egypt. They returned a little while later, but they didn't go back to Bethlehem. They went to Nazareth, and that's where Jesus grew up. He grew up there serving His family, acting perfectly, fulfilling all the Old Testament law, going up to the temple, perfectly obeying the law. Eventually moved into his family business, became a, a carpenter. And about the age of 30, he was compelled by the Spirit to launch his ministry. He was instantly identified with that last Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist. He went down to the shores of the Jordan and was baptized by him, and he was validated by the Godhead and all three parts of the Trinity there validating Jesus' ministry. 
Early in his ministry, we learn that he began to call certain men to follow him. These men left their jobs. They left their families. Why? They did it all to follow Jesus. The Spirit of God called them and compelled them to follow Jesus with exception of one individual. This person, God moved to follow Jesus, not in a positive way, but eventually to become the one who would betray him. Of course, that was Judas, the son of perdition. And that's what these men did. They began to follow Jesus early in His ministry. And we can watch them as they mature and learn from Jesus and grow, learning in their understanding and growing more and more. Every seems like every chapter they grew a little bit closer to Christ, a little bit better in their understanding and doctrine. All four Gospels attest that these weren't the only followers of Jesus, though they were His chosen men, there were others. Just as we see in this, own, this passage that we're studying today, these ladies, others who came and ministered and followed. What did Jesus do in His ministry? Well, for one thing, He preached expertly. Mark tells us that it was His habit to go into the synagogues and open up the scroll. and He just opened up the Bible and teach them from it. We see this happen in Luke chapter 4 as Jesus simply walked into a synagogue, His home synagogue, opens up a scroll and begins to explain the meaning and apply that meaning to the hearts of His listeners. Eventually, Jesus would take His preaching to the countryside. Some say this is a sign of the rejection of the Jews. He went from the houses and the synagogues and He went out to all who would listen. And Jesus goes out on the hillsides and people began to listen to His amazing preaching. What would validate this preaching? Well, it would be His amazing compassion and power to heal. He healed not just a few people, but if you read carefully as we studied, tens of thousands of people. There were days, in fact, if you remember all the way back early in His ministry, there was a, a three-day span of time where Jesus did not even sleep. All He did was heal person after person after person after person. Sometimes He would heal them individually, sometimes He would heal entire groups. Think of the ten lepers. Jesus healed person after person. If you just start doing the math, you realize that thousands and thousands of people were healed in Jesus' ministry. Jesus also fed them. He provided their needs, their physical needs. He fed them on more than one occasion. Again, thousands of people miraculously fulfilling their, spirit, their physical needs. All along the way, He is training, He is raising up these people, His followers, His men, but also those others who would follow Him around. And they began to understand. We get to Matthew chapter 16, and Peter articulates what's on their hearts, and that is the profession, the confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. These men, by God's grace, got it. This is Messiah, God. This is the promised one, and He is divine, and He will take away our sins. So it was at this point that Jesus began to teach them of the ominous truth of His death. But He also taught them the hope of His resurrection. Almost every time that He would tell them, I'm going to be captured and arrested and killed, He would add, but I will rise on the third day. As I studied for the sermon, I didn't go through and count, but one commentator I was reading said, if you add it all up, 
Jesus alluded to his death and resurrection 16 times in one way or another. I will die, but I will rise again. Well, the Sabbath was over, the third daytime, which is how the Hebrews counted it, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, third day was upon them. The last thing these ladies had seen was a rushed burial by Joseph of Arimathea. Third day was dawning. There was no resurrection as far as they understood, no resurrected Jesus. They're human as far as they know. They could only know what they saw. He was still dead. He was still sealed in that grave. Mark tells us that they were going to the grave to anoint Jesus, which indicates possibly that they felt that Joseph and Nicodemus, who was there to help Joseph of Arimathea, they didn't quite finish the, the anointing. Perhaps they put on some spices, but they weren't able to, to finish the job. And so perhaps they were there to finish the job. So these ladies collected their spices, their ointments, and they took them to do this sad thing, and that was to possibly anoint Jesus again. Maybe these soldiers would let them in, unseal the tomb, and let them complete the job. Now, where do you think these ladies were emotionally, even intellectually? Where do you think these ladies were? I'm always reminded of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if Christ had not been raised, our preaching is in vain, our faith is in vain, we are found to be misrepresenting God if Christ is not raised. If Christ is not raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. And those who've fallen asleep in Christ have perished, meaning they're just gone into nothingness. And what that means, this conclusion, is if Christ have not, has not been raised from the dead, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. That's what these ladies felt at that moment. We're a pitiful bunch. We don't even know if this faith is real. We don't know if the people who died who love Jesus, or even in heaven or where they are. Maybe we've been misrepresenting God. Maybe all that preaching and all that Christ has done is in vain. Maybe our faith in Him is in vain. This is where these ladies were. Jesus was dead. They loved Him. But all that He said was now in question. All their faith in Him, all their devotion, all their service, all their love, seemed useless. All those miracles, perhaps in vain, maybe they didn't even know if their sins had been truly forgiven, if that atonement meant something. Did God really receive the sacrifice of the Son? How would they know that this kingdom was starting if it started with death? Well, in short, they wouldn't. It seemed like a failure. All the miracles, all the personal sacrifice seemed like it was for nothing. But all the evidence pointed to a dead Jesus. So it seemed like a waste to them. That's where they were emotionally. That's where they were spiritually, even in their minds. That's where these ladies were at the end of chapter 27, into the first verse of 28. Look at verse 1 of 28. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day, Mary Magdalene... And the other Mary went to see the tomb. And again, you can imagine, if you were with us on Friday night for our Good Friday service, that's where we left it. We didn't celebrate the resurrection. We 
looked at the death of Jesus and we left these brothers and sisters of ours, this little congregation of Christ's followers, we left them in a hopeless state, in a darkness. Deeply saddened, deeply sorrowful, broken, despondent. Just imagine what they felt. Imagine even your darkest hours, your darkest time. I'm sure that would mimic what they felt. They were in for a surprise. The first thing that surprised them is given to us in Matthew's account is that there was another earthquake. The first earthquake, of course, was when Jesus died. This is another earthquake, a different earthquake. This is another quake shaking due to divine intervention. The first one was due to the fact that the earth cannot contain the judgment of God for our sin. This second quake happened for a different reason. And people sort of debate what this earthquake was about. Some people say, oh, this quake was when Jesus actually rose from the grave. You know, that's possible, but the Bible just doesn't tell us that. There's nothing that indicates that when Jesus actually rose up, there was an earthquake. Other people say, well, this earthquake was similar to the first earthquake that broke open the tombs. This earthquake was to break open the tombs so that Jesus could get out of the tomb. Well, I can assure you of this. If God has the power to raise Jesus up, He has the power to just get Jesus out through a rock. In fact, Jesus, we seems to be that his resurrected body had the power to actually go through certain barriers like walls and doors. And I think Jesus, when he was resurrected, he just simply walked out of the tomb, stone and all. All these things may be true, but I think verse 2 gives us a pretty clear indication of when this earthquake and why this earthquake took place. Verse 2, And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. I take this very literally. I think the angel came down, and when he descended to earth in a physical form, and his feet touched the ground, that earthquake happened. The earth started quaking. The guards looked up. They saw this brilliant figure, and they immediately passed out. Verse 3, speaking of that angel, Matthew said, His appearance was like lightning, his clothing was white as snow, and for fear of him the guards trembled and became like dead men. That means they fainted. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said, come, see the place where he lay. So I think the rolling away of the stone, the moving of the stone was not to let Jesus out, but to let the people in so they could see the evidence of his resurrection. Verse 7, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. This morning I want to identify three responses to the resurrection, three intertwined, connected responses to the resurrection. It's what we see with these ladies, and I hope to encourage you with these responses. There is a fourth response that we'll touch on. It's not the response I want us to have, but it's a response we see of these people who are selfish and self-seeking Beginning of 8 says simply, they departed quickly. The angel of the Lord spoke. He told them that Jesus had been raised. He told them with a command, go tell the disciples. Mark specified, go tell Peter and the rest. And the ladies did not hesitate. They didn't debate. They didn't argue. Plus their first response, the first response is faith. 
They responded in faith. They believed this. They believed the words of Jesus from before. All these things made sense to them. They believed the logic. They believed the evidence. They believed the divine messenger, the word that came from the messenger, the word of God. It all came together in their hearts, and they they trusted what God had said through the angel and what God had said through Christ. I'm sure they had many questions. I'm sure they had many thoughts and things they would discuss later, but their first impulse, their, their first response to this truth, Christ is risen, to this word, Christ is risen, He's not here, was faith. Now, I need to say, this was not just generic faith. This is biblical faith. Listen very closely. People are very confused about this idea of faith. They define it in many, many different ways. People are confused about its relationship with logic and reason and reality and science and history. They conflate faith. They confuse faith with other things that aren't true faith. So let me start by telling you what faith is not. Faith is not spiritualism. Some people believe that they have faith simply because they believe in a spiritual world. They just have some sort of positive idea that, oh, the the spirit world exists. There's some sort of afterlife. There's, There's some sort of reality. Maybe it's God. Maybe it's other things. Maybe it's a mixture of everything. I found this so true. So many people believe they have faith simply because they believe in the spirit world. I pray a lot. I think a lot of these things. I believe there's an afterlife or there's a God. It reminds me of Marilyn Monroe when someone asked her about, his, about faith or what she believes spiritually. She said, well, I believe a little bit about a lot of things. I believe a little of everything. Someone said, this is what's called the Monroe Doctrine. I believe a little bit of everything. Many millions of people believe a little of everything, and they think, well, maybe, maybe just to cover my bases, I'll just sort of affirm everything that's spiritual, everything that's sort of divine and out there. I'm not going to be against any kind of spiritual anything. I'm just going to affirm everything as though, you know, I can just cover my bases and be positive about everything. Do you think this is pretty popular thinking in Hawaii? It definitely is. I think this is sort of the, the main idea of faith in Hawaii. About a decade ago, I picked up the newspaper, and uh, in it was an article uh, about uh, George Barna, who's a religious uh, statistician. He does surveys and, and surveys groups of people. He had come here to Hawaii to, um, to just do some spiritual, a spiritual survey and find out what is, what is religion like in Hawaii. And Much to my surprise and much to his surprise, he found out that many, many people, many people in Hawaii consider themselves as Christians. Many more, in fact, than it was maybe 30 years ago. Many more people in these days believe themselves in this state, believe themselves to be Christians or identify themselves with Christianity. But he went on to say, but I asked them specific questions like, is Jesus the only way? Is the Bible really true? Does the gospel need to be preached to all people for them to know God? And he said, after I asked those questions, the percentage is quite scary. Four percent. Four percent. That's hard to believe. I mean, just think about my own, my own experience in Hawaii. I just, it seems like there's a lot of Christians around me. And if you ask those questions, questions that really reveal more about their faith than anything, 
I think what it reveals is that, yeah, we've got a lot of people who are spiritual. And they think because they're spiritual, they think that's genuine faith. Faith is not simply having some warm feelings about God, some generic, broad affirmation of the spirit world. That's not genuine faith. It's not spiritualism. Faith is also not blind credulity. That's not a word we use a lot, credulity. It's the only word I could come up with. When people use the word faith, a lot of people, what they mean is they just believe something is going to happen even though there's evidence it's not. Now, someone says, well, I've been diagnosed with cancer, but I have faith it's going to go away. God's going to heal me. I, my, my son has, has left the family. He's rejected God. He's run away. But I just believe with all my heart I have faith that he's coming back. Now, it's not wrong to pray for these things. It's not wrong to hope for these things. But that kind of faith is not analogous to the Christian faith. Incidentally, if you talk, if you begin to talk to your Mormon friends, what you'll find is that is Mormon faith. It defies all logic. It defies archaeology. It defies science. It defies all the evidence. But doggone it, if you just grit your teeth hard enough and you just believe, it may come true. Just blind credulity. In their minds, that's what faith is. I think a lot of Christians believe that's what saving faith is. Oh, all of this stuff, it's not true. It can't be true. This is all defies logic. It defies reality. It's not reasonable. But doggone it, I just believe. It may surprise you to know that that's not what the kind of faith that the Bible asks of us. That's not the kind of faith God asks us to have. It's not just simply gritting your teeth and taking a blind leap, closing your eyes, ignoring all reality, ignoring all truth, and just believing come what may. It's not blind credulity. What else is faith not? Faith is not optimism. Now, this is huge today. There's a massive market out there for churches and preachers who describe nothing about the gospel, nothing about atonement, nothing about repentance or genuine faith, nothing about contrition or self-denial. In fact, they avoid passages that talk about self-denial. Faith is simply optimism. It's really just a repackaging of Norman Vincent Peale, the power of positive thinking. I read one guy who was throwing around all these passages about believe and you can move mountains and all these things will be given to you. And he didn't pause to explain what was going on in context and what these passages meant. He just said, this is all a sign that everything's going to be good for you. There's nothing in your life that won't be good. If you're sick, you will be healed if you have enough faith. If your son runs away, he will come back if you have enough faith. You just got to be very, very optimistic. And if you're optimistic and if you say it out loud and make these claims, then God will respond to you. Just be extremely, extremely optimistic. In this sermon I was, I was reading, he, he said, when you wake up in the morning, just say out loud three times, I believe, I believe, I believe. I thought to myself, you believe what? It's just blind optimism, not faith. What is genuine faith? Genuine faith is taking God at His word. We need to be, me be, we need to be convinced that the, God is able and has clearly revealed Himself to us in His word. He's not left us guessing. He's given us prophets and apostles, and incidentally, He's given us ways that we can test prophets and apostles 
to figure out if they're false or true and telling the truth. He's given us these men to deliver to us His Word, His message, inerrantly, infallibly, perfectly, and it has preserved that Word throughout the centuries. And by the way, believing God's Word is not some blind, irrational leap of faith. In fact, it is the most rational thing that you could possibly do. There were 500 people who spoke to the resurrected Christ, who were testimonies to the resurrected Christ. Now think if you were in a courtroom and you were one of the jury, part of the jury, and 500 witnesses came in and said the exact same thing. You'd be irrational not to believe them. Christianity is not some blind leap of faith. It coheres with reality. It coheres with science. It coheres with properly written history. It coheres with truth, archaeology. It coheres with it. It's not reason. Faith in of itself is not reason or logic, but it certainly coheres with these things. And I've said this many times before. I think the most logical, intellectually consistent thing you could possibly do was to, is to follow Jesus Christ. It's to have faith in Christ. These things are not just blind faith. These things have evidence. Now, it may defy what your mind can understand, but your mind is limited. Your mind is weak. These things have been testified to. There's plenty of logic and rationality. Genuine faith is not something that contradicts these things, but coheres with these things. It believes God's Word not as a as a blind leap, it believes God's Word because it is true, and, it, and it's been proven true over and over again. Genuine faith is then also building your life on God's Word. If Scripture says, repent, have faith, you do it. You obey, you comply. You don't just say, well, I believe, and go about your merry way. No, you deny yourself. You learn everything, what the Bible says about Himself, what God says about Himself, about Jesus I can't help but think that this is maybe the message that some of you came, that God brought you here to hear. Maybe you don't come to church that often. It's Easter Sunday. You've come in, and maybe God has orchestrated that so that you would hear that very idea. Maybe you've had some sort of generic faith, some sort of broad faith, some, something that's just not genuine faith. It doesn't include obedience. It doesn't include discipleship. You're certainly not denying yourself and following passionately after Jesus, and maybe you realize even as I say these words, that it's time for you to have genuine faith. You can do that right now. Just say, God, I repent. I trust in Christ. I want to follow Jesus. I deny myself. I want to follow Jesus. Now, these ladies heard Jesus over and over speak of His resurrection. That's the Word of God. The messenger of God came, brought them the Word again. He is risen. And these ladies did not hesitate they saw the burial garments. In fact, Luke tells us, and John also confirms, that another angel actually accompanied the first at this point. He came down, and they sat on either side of the grave, one where his feet were laid and one where his head was laid, and there were the clothes in between as though Jesus came right through them. I can't help but imagine that these ladies may have thought about the Ark of the Covenant with the two angels and the presence of God. Jesus had risen up. They saw this, there was evidence, there was the Word of God, it all cohered together, and they believed, they had faith. That's the first response, which in reality is part and parcel to all the rest of these responses. Look at what happened 
as they ran back to tell the disciples. Verse 9, and behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of His feet and worshiped Him. Second response to the resurrection, worship. Worship. It says that Jesus met them. I tend to think, given the other passages, they may have not immediately recognized Him in His resurrected body. John indicates that Mary actually had gone to the, the grave earlier and beat the other ladies, essentially beating them to the tomb. Matthew gives us more of a summary, but she went ahead and beat them to the tomb, and she was the first one to see the resurrected Jesus and did not immediately recognize Him. She thought He was the gardener. And I think these ladies possibly did the same until they heard Him give this very simple salute, and that would be greetings. Now, in the English, that word greetings sounds kind of dull, simple. The word there is a little bit different. The word is Cairo, and it was indeed a way of greeting other people, but it was a different kind of greeting. In fact, most of the time that word is translated as rejoice or be glad. He said this to the ladies. When these words came off his lips, they recognized him. And they ran to him and they fell off to their, down to their, the ground. It says they took hold of his feet. Uh, the word, the, the verb there that's used to take hold of feet, take hold of his feet, that phrase can actually mean that they are on eye level with something. So it's possible that it mean that they actually all just grabbed his feet all at once. Uh, it possibly means they just got down on eye level with his feet. They got down, they prostrated themselves. And this is confirmed with a, a word that's used... Uh, right after that, they proskuneo, they prostrated themselves in worship. They worshiped him. They fell to the ground, their heads where his feet stood. And this is the right response to the resurrection. We believe, we have faith in God's word. We build our lives around this truth. It's a word driven faith, and we worship Jesus. And the way I'm using the word worship here is not just. Uh, the broad sense, but the specific sense in terms of praise. We praise Him. We sing about Him. We enjoy thinking about Christ. We enjoy talking of Christ. We enjoy singing on Sunday morning with the believers. We praise Him. It's part of our life to praise Him. I've used this illustration before, but if you were a, a football fan of some particular team and you read about their players and their coach and all that happened, all the intrigue that happens in the offseason, and then the season finally comes and you, you go into the stadium and there they are playing. You don't just stand there or sit there with your arms to the side and your mouth closed. Now, what do you do? You praise. You've been wrapping your mind and your thoughts and your energy around who they are and what's going on and what they're all about and all the things that happen, and so much so that when it comes, your emotions just burst forth in praise. Now, that's what true Christians do, particularly on the Lord's Day. We come together and we praise. We come together and we praise. I always wonder about a person's Christianity who can come to church and not sing. Do you really love Christ? Are you really someone who has faith in Christ if you just refuse to praise Him? These ladies couldn't help themselves. They fell to their faces and they praised Him. Verse 10, Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. 
go tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Just so you're not confused, Jesus made a number of appearances for the next 40 days. He would make an appearance to them there in the upper room just in a few minutes after this. But he would also appear to some disciples on the road to Emmaus. He would appear to several in Galilee at several different times. He's talking about the final time when he really goes up and gives them this commission and, and, and really speaks to them and instructs them. Now, that's what he's referring to. He wants them to go to Galilee. They're going to go back to the place of the nations. He's going to go back to Capernaum where he started his ministry, and he's going to go and explain to them his uh, mission for them. Now, this is where obedience comes in, faith, worship, and number three, final response is obedience. And the final response I want us to have is obedience. James, the writer of the epistle of James, said, it is said of him that he sounds more like Jesus and speaks more like Jesus than any other New Testament author. Some of you read it in the family group outline a couple of weeks ago or maybe this last week. James 2, verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says they have faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? The implied answer is, of course not. That kind of faith is a false faith. True faith doesn't just believe and profess and show up on Sunday morning and sing songs. True faith actually is life-changing. It actually makes a difference in who we are. Jesus gave the words to these ladies, and they instantly hustled away to tell the disciples they'd seen and heard, just like the angel had said, they'd carried on away in obedience with the word of the, the, the God through the, the, the God's messenger, and they carried the word of God through Jesus himself. They carried that to the disciples. They told them they obeyed. And of course, Jesus said, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. How can you honor Christ in your hearts? How can you respond to the resurrection? You respond to Him in faith, in worship, and obedience. The next paragraph is the opposite. I've even put it in parentheses because I don't want you to do it, and that is denial. Number four, what we see is denial of the resurrection. Look there at verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled... With the elders and taking counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. They said, tell the people. His disciples came by night, stole them away, and were asleep. And this comes to the governor's ears. We will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. It says in 11, the guard, and I think that some of the guard, I think that some of the guard are those two that had passed out by the tomb of Jesus. This earthquake, they saw the angels, they fainted. Something tells me they didn't tell that part to whoever they talked to about this. Sort of embarrassing. But they went and did tell them something had happened. And the leaders there concocted very quickly a story, a story of cover-up. But there was some of the Sanhedrin, the elders, the religious leaders, the chief priests. And he said, we're going to give you a bunch of money. And what we want you to do is propagate this story that the disciples came and stole the body of Jesus. This is denial. The fact of the matter is, they couldn't believe 
in the resurrection. They would be toast if they believed in the resurrection had taken place because not just would their whole ministry be false, they would be in eternal trouble. You ever wondered about that? Why, why are people atheists? Why do they shake their fist at God? I think ultimately they, they know that if God exists, if Jesus is true, if this is real, they're responsible. Suddenly they're responsible for their actions. They're responsible to the divine God. They're responsible to have faith in Christ. And so they can't believe. They have to deny. Because they don't want to give any kind of reason for their sin. They don't want to be responsible. I was reading this week a number of different ways that people deny. One is the denial of rationalism. Rationalism or modernism is a form of humanism. It says humans are sort of the apex, and if the human mind cannot explain something, it must not be true. In essence, they say, this is a much more popular in the last century, the resurrection cannot be true because it's a miracle, and miracles defy human thinking, human reason. Humans cannot explain a miracle, therefore they cannot happen. This is the denial of rationalism. Two is the denial of unbelief. Don't know what happened. I just don't believe it. I think this is where the Pharisees were. The Pharisees believed in miracles. They were not like the Sadducees who were more like rationalists. They, they believed in miracles. They believed in the Old Testament, but just not this miracle. This is not a miracle we want to believe in. Again, I think it's because it kept them from having to be responsible to God. Three, there's the denial of indifference. Whether Jesus rose from the dead or not, I don't know and I don't care. Doesn't make a difference to me. Four is a denial of hostility. This version of denial not, not only rejects the reality of the resurrection, but hates those who differ with them and their view. This is the long-held idea of the atheist. There is no God and I hate him. I despise this whole idea. Fifth is a denial of compromise. This is liberal Christianity. They look around the world and they see all this denial. They see all the rationalists and the people hostile to God and the disbelief that's all around. They think, well, maybe there's some sort of compromise. Maybe we can take a step in their direction and come up with an alternate view of resurrection. And so that's what they've done. If you read liberal Christianity, what they've done is they come up with alternate views. Well, Jesus was resurrected, but he was just resurrected sort of in a spiritual way. Well, Jesus was resurrected, but he was resurrected simply in the hearts of his followers. And that's why they came up with a story of his physical resurrection. It's just, just a representation of a spiritual, something, a memory of him in their hearts. It's another way of denying the resurrection. Paul said in Romans 10, verse 9, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In other words, to be saved, you must respond to the resurrection, not with denial, but with faith, worship, and obedience. Everyone who believes, Paul says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. In other words, if you deny, you will be put to eternal shame. On the other hand, if you believe in Christ, if you have faith, if you see the resurrection and you worship Him and you dedicate your life to Him, you get to experience the same joy those ladies felt that morning. Isn't that a great thought? All of the ups and downs with this whole ministry, 
We've studied this all the way from the birth. It seemed to be at that last moment purposeless or meaningless for just a few days, but up from the grave he arose. He triumphed over the grave. He lives again, our glorious king. Do you believe it? 2,000 years later, here we are on this island, which is about as far from Israel as any other landmass. Here we are expressing our faith, our praise, and our obedience. Well, let's do that right now. Father, we do thank you for what you've given us. We thank you for all that you've blessed us with. We thank you for raising Jesus up. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless us with the desire to increase our faith and our obedience and our worship of Christ. And again, we pray for those who don't know you, cause in their hearts a desire to follow you. Lord, we love you. We worship you. May this be the start of something special for those who haven't known you before, that they would believe and follow you. And Lord, for all of us, we pray that this would be just the most meaningful moment as we think about following after Jesus in faith and worship. We ask this in his name. Amen. Stand with me, if you will, for a time of benediction. Now may we go with the wonderful assurance that Jesus, in fact, has been raised from the dead, and He is the firstfruits of all who love and follow Him. For as in Adam we all have inherited death, in Christ we have all been made alive forevermore. Amen.